we also could be doing a better job of looking across forms of disability, whether or not it's uh, children or adults, and thinking about eliminating barriers, whether the material like doorways or, or institutional. An example of this came to mind early on in Asha's diagnosis because her primary issue is an issue of strength, muscular strength. It's like, well, okay, so we have doors that will open automatically when you push the button. But what if you don't have the strength to push the button? A daughter and a doorway. This is a little snippet of today's episode with our guest on View to the U podcast, Professor Ron Buehling, who will discuss what is driving his transportation geography research these days. He also talks about his personal connection with accessibility for children with disabilities, especially as it relates to travel to and from school. And I have to say, after speaking with him, I just can't help but look at public spaces differently and think about the accessibility of places for people, but also reflecting on some things I take for granted, like walking my own daughter to school. Hello, and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T, Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. Professor Ron Buehling has been a faculty member in UTM's Department of Geography and in Geography and Planning at U of T since 2006. His research focuses on transportation geography, transportation planning, and population health. But over the course of the last few years, he has focused more extensively on accessibility as it relates to children with disabilities. Also, in relation to UTM's 50th anniversary, and having worked on the campus for over a decade, Ron will speak to some of the changes he's observed at UTM over his time here, and not surprisingly, because he is a geographer after all. He reflects on Mississauga's urban development, but also as someone who leads an active lifestyle, expresses his appreciation for nice spaces to work out in, like UTM's Recreation and Athletic Wellness Center, or The Rock, as we call it, You work in a few areas, including transportation, geography, and population health, focusing more these days on accessibility and how it relates to transportation. And I just wondered if you could give me an overview of your current research program and perhaps some of the findings that you've uncovered so far. I've uh, focused my research on looking at issues around children's lives in cities, specifically looking at children's mobility urban design, school travel, and things of that nature. And one of the things driving that research agenda really was considering what it's like for some of the most vulnerable people in our society to live live in our cities, live in our region, and so on, and figure out ways to maybe um, improve everyday life for, for children and their households. But also we know that there's, or we identified a uh, decline in, in the use of uh, active modes of transportation, like walking and biking and so on. Process that really started early 20th century with the commercialization of automobility. So I sort of became interested in, in that process and, and why it's happened and what's happening now and what are the environmental and social factors that might be driving the um, current state of children's transport, which is largely dominated by driving our children everywhere for everything if you happen to live in a household with access to a vehicle. And so in that work, we've partnered with organizations like Metrolinx, uh, City of Toronto and others, who actually have in their mandate and in their uh, long-range plans statements about 
where they'd like to see children's transport, particularly to school, you know, over the next 25 to 30 years. So my work is sort of developing an evidence base to support planning as it pertains to children's lives in cities. More recently, however, I kind of changed my uh, focus to look more closely at disability in childhood and access to education. So not really looking at transportation specifically, but transportation is part of that conversation. And so while we have a lot of research findings and so on related to this other piece of work that we've been doing, I'm really pretty interested in focusing our conversation today on on the most recent work. And that work is currently supported by a Shirk Insight Development Grant, which I was successful in in getting last year, but we're also partnered with Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children, where we have some funding from what's called the Norman Saunders Complex Care Initiative. And uh, we just won a small summer research award for one of my students who's working on the project from the Center for uh, Healthy Active Kids at the Hospital for Sick Children. And it's actually kind of interesting because if you think about, I mean, even the word active kids, the first thing that comes to mind isn't necessarily in society, a child in a wheelchair? Like, how do we conceptualize being active when you have some mobility challenges that limit the way in which you perform being active? To take a a step back, one might ask, well, what, what motivated me to look at this issue of disability in childhood? Admittedly, I was one of these people who was roaming around and living out my life and having children and building a family and thinking that nothing could necessarily go wrong in that process. And when my third daughter was born, we had no indication that there were any problems. But uh, a little bit later, she started to fall short of achieving some of her gross motor milestones. And it turns out that she has a a genetic neuromuscular disease called spinal muscular atrophy uh, type 2. And, you know, a little shout out to our our friends in the SMA community. There's a a Canada-wide organization called Families of uh, Spinal Muscular Atrophy who does a lot of work in helping families deal with many of the challenges associated with SMA. And they were one of the first groups that I reached out to, literally on day two of the diagnosis. When the healthcare system kind of cut us loose and said, okay, here's your diagnosis, go and figure it out. How did you even find them, though? Like, did you... Oh, just searching online. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a researcher. <laughs> right. I did some research. I should apply those skills in my everyday life now that we're in crisis. So uh, that's been a, you know, I, I don't often like to use the word journey because it's overused. But it really has been a journey from, that, from diagnosis to today where my five-year-old is in uh, senior kindergarten. And that process of getting from diagnosis to her being an SK was fraught with myriad challenges and amazing life-changing experiences. But we came up against, but also sometimes in a collaborative way with the healthcare system, city planning in the sense like we need to redevelop the front of our house to make it accessible. And that process took two years because there's no disability is not codified in the institutional thinking and planning around making it work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and then also with the, the school board and the school board, we all know the school boards are, are stretched. However, we are passionate advocates for our daughter having access to education. In her case, she has no comorbidity. Her primary problem is um, muscular. So she requires an electric wheelchair to move around. She's five years old and she drives a 300 pound electric wheelchair, which she's been doing on her own for a few years now and travels to school by herself on a bus. 
but cognitively she's sort of at the same level as like her counterparts in the same grade. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at her track developmentally from an intellectual perspective, she's reading at the level, if not above the level. With her particular type of disease, there's some thinking in the medical community that these children tend to compensate in other parts of their development. There's like stereotypical comments about kids with SMA that they're very social, much more so than other children and so on. And they're using those people skills to get everything that they want. So the the advocacy piece, I, I can honestly say it took about two years for me to actually mentally prepare myself enough to start thinking about bringing these everyday experiences of our household into my professional space. Because really, I mean, the professional space is kind of protected me in some ways from dealing with all of that emotional stuff and all of the struggle in another sphere. I could just continue on. and But I, I realized that um, at the university, uh, being a professor, it, it's an incredibly privileged position, not just in terms of our ability to, on a daily basis, invest time and energy into things we're curious about, but also in terms of income, but also in terms of benefits, but also in terms of flexibility. And my partner, she's a physician. And so we're sitting here in this situation where we're dealing with the challenges of spinal muscular atrophy, but we're a household that has a very high income and one person with an extremely flexible schedule. So I I believe that I have a responsibility to do this kind of work to try to figure out how to make things easier for all families who have these types of challenges, not just SMA families, but any type of additional challenge in childhood. And so the most recent work is really about, first of all, identifying and, I don't know, (laughs) getting on my soapbox and basically saying, look, in transportation geography and transportation planning, we're kind of thinking about disability, but by and large, we're thinking about disability in the context of the aging population. in, In terms of people in my parents' generation, who are in general the wealthiest generation, in the history of the world, right? And so a lot of the focus in disability research, mobility research, is on that particular population. So I'm really interested in looking at disability in childhood and early childhood in particular because of my experience, but also because it's not really part of our discourse in transportation planning and geography in any Mm -hmm. really meaningful way. So we've started off this work by basically developing a a paper that systematically criticizes the literature for for not having disability being present within it in a a large way. And why why do you think that is, though, that there's this gap when it relates to disability? Is it just that disability, as you were mentioning before, is harder to define or like why why has it been left out? Well, I think it's kind of interesting. So when I started working on child and youth transportation, it became abundantly clear to me there were really only a few of us in North America and even globally, really a handful of scholars who were taking it seriously. And my feeling is when do you gain the tacit knowledge with regard to um, moving around your neighborhood? Like when do you, most people learn to ride a bike and walk and so on in childhood. Right. In Toronto, for example, we have the, the child-friendly TTC policy where if you're 12 or under, you ride for free and they're showing massive increase in ridership for among children and youth. If that becomes part of your experience, like moving in a, in a way that doesn't involve the automobile, if that becomes normalized, then as you age, you realize that those tools are part of your toolkit for moving around the city. And maybe you'll think about continuing to do that or moving to a place where you don't necessarily have to drive everywhere if you can afford to. I mean, that's the other issue. Like income is a big deal with regard to residential choice and mobility. Um, so we, we saw or I saw in you know, all of the child youth uh, scholars will, will say, okay, well, children don't have a large presence in doesn't matter what literature or what discipline you're looking at. It could be 
geography, sociology, planning. And each of those groups has a group within it that's working on child issues. So then, um, well, if children aren't re well represented, then certainly children with disabilities are, <laughs> are, going to, are going to have less presence in that literature. And, you know, it's sort of like looking at the vulnerable within the vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, but vulnerability also, this is not necessarily a good way to describe because these children are also incredibly powerful. They have a lot of agency, a lot of strength. Where there may be limitations in one way, there are incredible strengths in other ways. Um, nevertheless, this absent kind of presence of disability in the literature sort of drove the, the academic work in this area. And I know you mentioned Metrolinks, which you have an ongoing relationship with them, their partnership, they're a funder of some of your research. And so I was just wondering, are they as committed to accessibility issues as you are in your research? Well, uh, Metrolinks actually funded a, a small project where we, well, it turned out not to be very small. It culminated with four pretty large reports where we we're looking at sort of the state of accessibility and transportation-related accessibility within uh, education across the greater Toronto and Hamilton area, kind of looking at uh, best practices here and elsewhere and so on. Also, we developed a, a review article for Metrolinks where we summarized the different ways to theorize disability, to think about disability, and then provided some examples to help them see well how, how you could apply a different theoretical approach to thinking about planning a particular service. Yeah. Um, and so we have uh, terrific partners there. And this also includes a forum called the uh, Greater Toronto and Hamilton Area Active School Transportation Hub, where uh, I'll be presenting some of this work in April. And that hub includes practitioners, even registered nurses and RPNs and so on who work at the school level, to members of school boards, to just interested, engaged citizens, transportation planners and other people from government, um, in a conversation about children's transportation, particularly as it relates to school. Um, and so I've been poking away from the side on this disability piece. I, I had worked with them extensively on, because uh, last year we released a report where we looked at children's school travel over 25 years across the region, the cities and municipalities. And they're a, a terrific partner and are working to get some of what we're saying plugged into the uh, Regional Transportation Planning Review, which is currently underway. So they have staff dedicated to the accessibility issue. I don't know if this is a fair question, but are you also concerned with childhood obesity rates in, in your work as well? or I'm concerned with inactivity in childhood, the rise of sedentary activity. I've had an active lifestyle from childhood to the present day. I've heard that you, right. you cycle into the Mississauga campus some days on, from Toronto. So Yeah, actually, in, in the first semester of this year, I, I drove here twice and I was teaching two courses. So I, I was riding here and back. It's like 60 kilometers round trip. But it's amazing, you know, along the lakeshore, there's the western waterfront path and so on. It's terrific. But I believe a lot of this stuff, uh, like how you construct a lifestyle and all of this begins in childhood and early childhood. And I guess I would say now, because I've changed my focus toward the disability piece, I'm less concerned with obesity um, and overweight. We have a lot of people out there who are working on those issues. We had a project that was funded by CIHR starting in 2008 called the Built Environment and Active Transportation Project, where we looked at this question as it related to school travel. We looked at whether or not children who actively travel to school had a better BMI than others or uh, were less likely to be overweight and obese. And you know, children who traveled to school generally had higher rates of physical activity participation 
And there was some subtle evidence with regard to the connection to the BMI piece. But I, I have to say that the disability piece is so massive that I really, I mean, I'm just going to dedicate my energy. I'm going to allow my passion for that to drive my research for the next several years. Yeah. This Shirk project, what we're doing actually, in our partnering with sick kids, we've been recruiting families through some of the clinics that I'm involved in on a personal level with my daughter and, and others. I have a long-term research collaboration with Dr. Andrew Howard, who's a pediatric ortho surgeon at Sick Kids, and the work he does clinically is also amazing. You know, I say to people, well, Andrew's the guy who sometimes puts children back together who've been hit by cars. That's one of the things that he does. Like it's, I don't know how you can do that and not say this is an unacceptable outcome in, in the modern age. We've been working with his clinic, recruiting families who are dealing with osteogenesis imperfecta. And one of, one of the things that's interesting about this is that the kids with OI have fragile bone structure. So some of those kids end up using mobility aids just like my daughter uses a mobility aid. They have two different diseases, but the processes and the material aspects of their lives can be similar. And so they come up against similar challenges in getting to and from school. And one of the things that we've been doing with this work is what's called a photo voice ethnography. So we're engaging, for brevity's sake, I'm going to say parents and their children in a conversation about the school travel experience. But when we interview the children separately from the parents so that the children have their own experience of the study. And our family, I selfishly and probably smartly <laughs> used our family in the pilot project because it's not just piloting questions and all the rest of it. It's also piloting hardware. Um, we work with a group at Ryerson to get mount so that we could mount onto my daughter's chair so that she could take photos using an iPod touch because her, she's not strong enough to even push a button on a regular digital camera. Yeah. So she needs touch technology. And so she was taking photos of her trip to school. We were taking photos of that period of the day. And then the photos are used in an interview process and used as cues to get and remind participants about that experience. So she's five years old and she's an active research participant, which is just terrific. And one of the things that we want to do with this project, we're basically looking at the trip from literally inside the house, like from the moment the child wakes up in the morning to the school. And we break that up into, you know, what's happening in the house, what's happening from the transition from the house to the curb, and then from there, are they going by bus or is there some other thing happening there? And looking at all of those issues and each one of those steps is almost swamped by institutional aspects, whether it's building permit to install a lift on your property or to change the slope of the drive or all of the paperwork you have to do to ensure that you can get transportation services to get your child to school, uh, including the downstream issue of, okay, a school board decides how to allocate its disability resources. And part of that is based on um, how the Ministry of Education defines disability or exceptionality, as they call it. And so there's a network of schools in the TDSB, for example, and some of them deal with physical issues. Some of them deal with behavioral and cognitive stuff. Some of them will deal with both. And so you got to figure out, well, there's a network of schools, which one are we going to go to? And because I was wondering that when you were talking about outfitting your house, it's like, are most of the schools, though, designed for someone in a wheelchair or those sort of accessibility? Yeah, absolutely not. It's really frustrating. So I have two children who live in my household, and one of them goes to school 500 meters away, and I walk her to school each day. And that school can accommodate 
her sister. It would be really nice if my children could go to the same school. I mean, this was sort of driving some of the work. Why can't this school accommodate Asha? Well, the kindergarten's on the second floor. There's no elevator. The school was built in 1916. The TDSB can barely keep the lights on because they have severe budgetary problems and they have massive capital improvement issues that are, that are going. Like They've just replaced all of these windows in her school and each window is a custom thing because these buildings were all built custom like one of a kind sort of thing. And I get that. But if that's the case, then let's make sure that the process to locate my daughter in a school works well. And like, if you're saying you can't serve her at the closest school, let's make it really easy. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that it's not. This is within, as I said at the sort of outset, this is within the context of a family situation where you have two highly educated professionals with income and, and flexibility. So what are the other stories mm -hmm. out there? And that's kind of what I wanted to do with this work. Get at our story, get at other stories. And if the institutions aren't going to step up to make things easier, maybe looking at simple things that could be done informally at the school end or even at the household end to make that school travel process a little bit easier. Um, my PhD student who's doing a lot of the interview work, Tim Ross, he's a PhD student in planning. He was kind of surprised at how much families had to say about this trip but also how emotional people who are being interviewed were getting. And I can tell you, I'm feeling it right mm -hmm. now. And I felt it when he interviewed me. And I said, you know, Tim, it's, it's because people don't ask. Like, they just assume that we're figuring all of this stuff out. And there's so much work involved in that process, right? I can't even, I'm not even going to begin to go through all of that. No, but as you're saying, every family is unique. Every disability is unique. Like, there are different challenges associated with each case, right? Absolutely. Um, but we also could be doing a better job of looking across forms of disability, whether or not it's uh, children or adults, and thinking about eliminating barriers, whether the material like doorways or, or institutional. An example of this came to mind early on in Asha's diagnosis because her primary issue is an issue of strength, muscular strength. It's like, well, okay, so we have doors that will open automatically when you push the button. But what if you don't have the strength to push the button? So here we've made an accommodation that doesn't work universally in an age where we all have touch technology on our phones and guaranteed. I mean, you can have motion sensors, you can have touch technology for buttons and all the rest of it. It's just, why don't we have that, yeah. you know? Anyway, so my goal with this work is to identify even relatively straightforward things that could be implemented fairly quickly to make this daily experience of school travel a little bit easier for households and children. It's not all bad either. I mean, there are things that Asha absolutely loves about her trip to school. One of my favorite parts of that is we have some neighbors down the street who had twins and they get along so well with Asha and they're always asking questions and they come out and they say hi to her when she's getting on the bus and they kind of ha have a little bit of social interaction. As a researcher doing this kind of work, I want to identify the problems and try to make things easier for people. But the stories are not just about what's wrong. At the end of the day, despite all of the challenges, Asha is getting an education um, in an integrated classroom and we're doing the best we can with the resources that we have but I think we can move the bar a little bit forward or up <laughs> in terms of doing a better job for families not obviously not just like ours but other families too and I think 
You've totally touched on this, so I don't even know whether I should ask, but the impact of your work, I think is pretty apparent what the impact is. But often I ask people what they feel is the impact. Yeah, I mean, I think there's impact in regard to the work that I did with ambulatory children. We were plugged into the policy conversation for several years on active school travel and healthy living. And and we were talking to the right people. One of the things that was really needed at the time was an evidence base on children's transportation that was situated within our region so that we weren't looking at data from Atlanta or some other U.S. city where things are completely different historically, socially, ethnoculturally, and so on, and trying to make policy decisions on the basis of data from somewhere else. I mean, I am a geographer, right? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, well, let's, let's build some data for here and let's plug that into the policy conversation and see what we can do. One of the things that we see in the literature more broadly, looking at differences in the way that, I'd say this in quotes because like I acknowledge and subscribe to the fluidity with regard to identity and, and so on. Secondary data indicate quite regularly that girls are less likely to travel actively and independently than boys. So that brings in a whole whack of things in terms of why that's the case. If you think about the planning organization looking at children as this homogeneous entity, one of the things that I wanted to do with our work was sort of really deconstruct that for them and say, okay, well, childhood is not the same for everyone everywhere. And as a result, we have differences in active travel. And as a result, we have some schools that are doing really well where you don't need to do any work. And we have other schools where there are some challenges, but also there are cases where legitimately, and I think this is another thing that pushed me towards the disability piece, where people legitimately have to drive their kids to school or the children have no other recourse but to be delivered by some form of automobile, like my daughter who goes by bus because there's no other choice, or I would take her in our disability van because we we have one of those. So I, I started getting frustrated with people talking about car-free zones around schools and all of this stuff. And I'd say, well, yeah, but what about children with disability? And then it would be like an afterthought. So we're like, oh yeah, yeah, of course we're gonna, no, it should be a forethought. It should be upfront. Just to share an anecdote on that front, Asha was going to a uh, integrated preschool. So you'd have children who had uh, CP, uh, SMA, autism spectrum stuff, children who had nothing going on now. I mean, I, I often <laughs> say to my wife, we've really just front loaded our situation <laughs> with some stuff. Um, all of these other people with children, you never know what's coming down the road. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait till they're teenagers, you know. And we had a challenge with parkings. I would take Asha there in our van. I would get to the school and the disabled parking spot on the street was located nowhere near where it was needed. And then so I'd often have to park some distance away and sometimes I would literally carry her in the winter also on sort of icy sidewalks and stuff. So eventually I, I, we kept at them and we said, well, you know, like the street is the domain of, of the city of Toronto and the neighborhood doesn't want spots given to disability because it takes a parking spot away from the neighborhood. It's like, well, that's really nice. Thank you, neighborhood. Um, but also the principal didn't want to engage in that process of accommodation. And why should we be accommodated? It should just really be there, especially this is at a place that has an integrated preschool. So what they did was they said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to let you park by the dumpster, which is closer to the entrance. But they didn't tell any of the other parents that this was the informal policy. So I still had the same problem. Someone's parked in our spot. So now what do I do? So again, it's like rather cynical way. I'm thinking, okay, well, we can get children walking. That's great. For the children who aren't walking, there, there is a laundry list of 
difficult issues, and that's the stuff I want to take on. So in terms of impact with this new work, like I said, like even um, Asha going to her school, we collaborated with EAs and, and so on to come up with some solutions to some of her transport challenges. Like we have a checklist of things that the EAs look at before she's sent home to minimize risk of everything from her not being buckled up to forgetting something that's really important to her at the school, a five-year-old will like lose their mind <laughs> over, <laughs> you know, I forgot this eraser that my best friend gave to me. <laughs> no. I was like, well, I'm sorry. I've been there. <laughs> I'm not driving back to the school. <laughs> you can get it tomorrow. <laughs> right. I think the other thing, just briefly, I, I, when I came in this morning, I said, well, there's this report I want to call up to remind myself about some statistics. And the Canadian Human Rights Commission has a report called Left Out, the Treatment of Persons with Disabilities in Canada's Education System. Fascinating report. And some of the things that I noted in there, and talk about the barriers, I look at this and I'm like, well, yeah, of course, but experiencing it. But mm -hmm. I think it's important that the organization is putting this out there. But stuff like lack of disability accommodation and support, lack of services and funding, ineffective dispute resolution, lack of special education and disability supports on First Nations reserves. I would add to this that I'm incredibly thankful that we live in Canada, particularly with regard to the stuff that has happened south of the border in regard to education planning and so on under the current administration because it's clearly systemically set up to discriminate in a horrible way against children from poor families, children who experience disability, and children who are at that intersection. Anyway, in this report, though, they talk about some other stuff, like the thing that, that really upset me was, can you imagine that you stopped your education early because your disability didn't fit within the system? You couldn't be accommodated? So 11% of students with disabilities report ending their education early because of their disability. And we're sitting at a university. So I think we need to ask the question, well, is that happening here? And if it is, what are we going to do about it? And the other part of this, though, is that this, this report is focused on youth and adults age 15 and older. But a lot of the processes and a lot of the stuff they talk about starts earlier. My daughter has experienced forms of bullying. And bullying is reported among, you know, one quarter of persons with disabilities report being bullied at school because of their disability. Like, it's not just yeah. because you wore the wrong hat. Yeah. This stuff is happening early. I think if you um, target early childhood education on the bullying front, mm -hmm. um, whether it's dealing with a disability issue or something else, like, that's where these behaviors are learned. That's where we start to inculcate our children with ideas about what's, you know, we can broaden their perspective on what is... Uh, you know, quotes, normal or whatever. So I think I'm in the right space. They're focused on older kids. We're going to focus on that elementary period and early childhood and, and really push and see what we can do. My long range vision for this is, okay, we're starting out here in Toronto and so on, but I'd like to gradually over the remainder of my career, expand the geographical scope and look across provinces, across Canada. And you can just see, I mean, this is, this is also aligned with a political reality where we have various levels of government taking responsibility for various aspects of the processes that I'm looking at from the top down and from the bottom up. So I, I, I'm aware of that and trying to plug the research into that. Coming up, UTM at 50. Ron talks about the shifts he's witnessed over the course of his time at UTM in the last 11 years. And as a geographer, he reflects on the physical changes as well as the growth of the campus. We're going to totally switch gears and move away from research because the first season of the podcast sort of focuses on the 50th at mm -hmm. UTM. 
And so, as you mentioned, you've been on campus since 2006. And I just wondered if you could speak to some of the changes that you've seen at UTM since you've been here and maybe where you see the campus going. Because as we all know, it's grown quite a bit. And yeah. just wondered if you could speak to that. You know, I have to say, I, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but probably because we've been talking about physical activity. I had the benefit of being uh, of starting my position just as the Rock was opened, the Recreation Wellness Center, and so this was one of the first big infrastructure things that I sort of observed on campus, and it's wonderful. I like to swim and the rest, and the pool's great. But obviously, the campus has been growing in leaps and bounds in terms of its buildings, particularly over the last five years or so. So I'm teaching in much nicer facilities than than I was when I first started. I mean, the campus is ideally positioned within the fastest sort of growing part of the region. And Mississauga is a, it's a fascinating place. It's an incredibly diverse city. And someone the other day was saying to me, oh, Mississauga has that many people. I was like, yeah, it's one of Canada's largest cities. There's a lot going on there. I've noticed a lot of material change on the campus. I think we've done a fairly good job of preserving our relationship with the natural environment. I've walked several times from my office to the North Building area and come across deer. I keep my eye on them. I don't know if... (laughs) (laughs) I'm not uh, keen to, to get too close. But also institutionally... UTM, its undergraduate population is the same, if not larger, than um, McMaster's was when I went there as an undergrad. I mean, we're basically a medium-sized Canadian university in our own right. We have, within my department, and I think across the campus, departments have been growing and hiring research-focused faculty. So that's one of the changes that I've noted. We have an incredible research portfolio here at uh, University of Toronto, Mississauga, with unlimited opportunity for expansion there. And I would say the public infrastructure, including research services here, to support that. I've really felt incredibly supported in the process of transitioning from PhD postdoc dependencies on others to being able to develop my own independent research program. We do what we do, and we can be successful not you know, because, because of the, the work of others just, just as much as the stuff that we're doing ourselves. The, the story that I was told about what used to be called Arendale mm-hmm. Campus, and I still actually, as a geographer, I like, I like that name because it reflects the situation of where the campus is. But, um, you know, that, that we, we've been in a process of transitioning from a place of, of teaching only to a place that excels at teaching, but also excels at research. Yeah. We are a place that is committed at the highest level to both. And I think that's to the benefit of ourselves and to our students. And I think that's one of the things that sort of drove having this podcast because I see in my seat here at the research office the amazing work going on, but we want everyone else to see it. So I wanted to thank you so much for coming in today to speak with me about your work. And I think you've given us important issues to think about. Thank you. Well, and thank you for the opportunity. This is actually officially my first podcast. <laughs> um, and so, so if I'm ever asked again, I'll know what I'm up against. <laughs> oh, Thanks, Ron. Thanks. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would like to thank my guest, Ron Buehling, for talking about his research and for sharing his very personal reasons for advocating for accessibility. A shout out too to Asha for inspiring so much of your dad's work. Thanks to the Office of the Vice Principal Research for their support. Thank you to everyone who has been helping to promote this podcast, particularly Veronica at the Bulletin. 
Special thanks to Tim Lane for all the great jams on today's show, for his audio assistance, for cutting me some slack in my attempts to do some of the audio editing myself, and for pretending not to hear the mistakes. Thank you.